Welcome to another episode of Inking of Immunity. This is Mike, and today we're joined by Colin Zescott. Uh, Colin is an assistant professor of psychology in Duluth, Minnesota, where he's also the principal investigator of the Social Cognition Lab. He's originally from Minneapolis and received his bachelor's in psychology from McAllister College and PhD in social psychology from the University of Arizona. The research in Collins Lab looks at perception and health from different perspectives, including the presence, consequences, and reduction of bias in the healthcare domain, the role of sauna use and well-being, motivation in sports, and the lab has a particular research focus on the stigmatization of tattooed people. Outside of his work, Colin enjoys spending time with his family, exploring the North Shore, CrossFit, coffee, tattoos, reading, and the Minnesota Vikings. Welcome, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, they have no Bama players, so I cannot support that. Oh, well, but you can support my coffee and tattoo habits, so there you okay, go. Okay, we'll, we'll meet you know, in the middle. If they, if they kept J.K. Scott, they'll be okay, but, you know, we're all a little bit bitter, and, and uh, gosh, what was our running back that you all had for a little while? Eddie, Eddie Lacy. Oh, he would have been with the Packers. Oh, that's what I'm thinking of. I'm, think, I'm thinking of the Packers. The Vikings are okay. I take that. Okay, back. good. Yeah, we don't think we don't talk about that other team. Yeah, you're, you're all good. <laughs> we could go off the rail very, very quickly talking about implicit and explicit bias in football, but um, maybe we'll just save that. Maybe we can talk about tattoos then, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, I guess that's what we're here for. Uh, so. Colin, the research that you conduct in your lab seems really diverse. Could you start off by telling us a bit about your journey in academia and what kind of led you into all these different areas of research? Yeah, happily. Um, I, I truly believe that all research is me-search to some degree. So um, yeah, really my, my focus on stuff that I'm interested in. Uh, like for instance, some of the, the early work that I did back in undergrad was really based in examining how athletes respond to racism that their teammates experience and hmm. their willingness to confront um, like fans or opposing players. And that stemmed from my own interest in athletics as a student athlete. And like from there, it just turns into, okay, well, what else am I interested in? Well, I also think tattoos are kind of interesting. So uh, along the lines of just trying to understand more on why people do the things that they do has kind of always been a question I've had. And that has just led me down a path with kind of awesome research assistants that want to explore different ideas too. So I'm always kind of open to, uh, to researching anything. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the focus that, that we've really done in our lab focuses much more on the side of like health implications um, with person perception and to what degree you could look at someone and treat them differently and why you would do those types of things. So yeah, maybe my own tattoos and interest in tattoos kind of led to some of that too, being told, you know, good luck getting a job, Colin. <laughs> um, and I, I'm happy to say I am employed right now, um, but perhaps my broader interest is just in, well, why would people even have that idea about me to begin yeah. with? So. Yeah, it's always been a, a why question about anything. That's the driving focus of our lab. 
So, Colin, you're a social psychologist. Um, so you've obviously looked at things around like what tattooing signals from people and I guess how people perceive those signals as well. So what does that mean for the way you frame your research? What's what's the kind of theoretical underpinnings that you go with? Yeah, really much of much of what I think about as a social social psychologist, like when I'm trying to think about humans and and human behavior is a, like an important focus on the context of the environments which people find themselves in. So that's that's a primary focus. But at the same time, understanding that people are individuals and there can be some some differences that are perhaps context independent. And where I like to find my research is how those two interact together. How do who we are as people and the environments that we find ourselves in, where do those meet and how might those change parts of what people might do independent of different environments. That's really where the focus of my uh, like vision as a social psychologist lies is kind of in that, that interaction together, which is, is kind of the, the driving focus of my work. Yeah. Well, speaking of that focus, in 2015, you conducted a study of tattoos that were near an individual's face and implicit attitudes that went along with, with viewing those people. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you expected to find when you went into that research? Yeah, happily. Um, much of, much of, just like kind of in a, in a broader sense, what a lot of my work focuses on is kind of differences in how people might process things explicitly, like through just asking through self-report what people could consciously report back to us and more implicit ways that people might process information. So um, maybe things that are more automatic or less subject to conscious control um, is how I would kind of broadly differentiate these two. And I like to think of that implicit side oftentimes really based in associations that we have. So I might think, you know, Alabama, and the first thing I think about is football. That doesn't take much like thinking resources, right? And that's probably a correct association to have. but this can get really trippy quite easy and, and lead us down a path of some maybe incorrect associations. Yeah, it's super fast and easy, but in what ways might this be inaccurate? So really that was our focus. No one had been talking about this with, with tattooed individuals. So that was really the primary focus of, of our early work. And we wanted to uh, kind of just have a very like robust, like when you think of someone with a tattoo that perhaps you might dislike, or somehow view as extra deviant. Um, we were thinking facial tattoos or neck tattoos, perhaps more uncommon spots, at least traditionally, maybe associated with more deviancy. So that was kind of our primary focus was just to see, well, we know that reports are coming out that people are getting tattooed at higher rates kind of worldwide. Explicitly, when we ask people, maybe attitudes are changing, but, but what about at this more kind of gut level? And so... We potentially expected that there might be some differences there between what people would consciously like self-report and maybe at this more automatic association level. People can see us so they can see what we're talking about here. And when we look at Becky, who's got a facial tattoo, what do we think about Becky's behavioral repertoire? What do we find? In thinking about like perceptions of a heavily tattooed person, the implications of how you might actually view that person in different contexts is, is a focus of our work, like how you would view that person in a health context, right? If there's just like one small little nugget that you think could be accurate about this person, one small judgment that could then be extrapolated into all of these arenas, like to a similar degree, if you see someone with like a tattoo on their lower back, 
what are some of those associations that you have right away? We're starting to explore some of that with how uh, tattoos in certain locations for women, individuals might actually perceive that uh, in terms of like sexual deviancy or even um, in the ways that people could perpetuate like rape myths. So, oh, this person, you know, actually they, they seemed like they were more available at the party or, you know, they were dressed a certain way that was more provocative compared to when you're viewing like a non-tattooed woman. Yeah. And anecdotally, I can totally see all of that stuff. There is, I mean, from, from my experience, people make those assumptions about me and have done for a long time around me tattoos and stuff. So I totally see that. <laughs> And we know how important first impressions yeah. are, right? And that's totally on them. Mm -hmm. Like uh, uh, for other individuals, whatever they are perceiving at first, if they are making mistakes in that, like that is 100% on them. But the implications of that and how hard it can be to break first impressions of people can be quite difficult. Yeah. So yeah, when you're just given like a little bit of slice of information about someone and it's like, eh, what's a tool? What's a rule of thumb I can use? Oh, tattoos. Tattoos mean this. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I'm on with how I'm going to treat this person. So back in like, what, 2008 or nine, a person we all cite, but none of us can find since then, Silco Walrob, I think is <laughs> the name of that person. Yeah. I don't know, Colin, if you know this person, we haven't been able to find them, but they- Only, only they, robustly cited. I've only robustly yeah. cited them. Yeah, and published uh, like papers that became the dissertation and then the person disappeared. But mm. they did a study like this in, in Germany where they found that tattooed women were viewed as more promiscuous and, and more willing to engage in risk behavior. And that was for men and women rating mm -hmm. men or women, and they were computer synthesized versions, but they found uh, something different for men. And so I assume you've done your studies in the US and, and how your studies compare and what you found. Yeah. So, so yeah, everything that we've done is in the US. And in terms of like some of the work with perceptions of tattooed women, we're actually still in data collection right now. So really, I haven't you know peaked to see anything yet, but um, at least some pilot data that we have where tattooed women being associated like implicitly with more negative type traits and, and negative attitudes fits well with that work. In much of our work, we actually don't find, at least in perceptions of tattooed men and women, any gender differences at that more implicit level. Where we do tend to find differences, though, at, at an individual level is in people's like motivations to not be prejudiced or, or not hold uh, stereotype beliefs. So that's where we actually tend to, uh, to find some individual differences is that if people kind of internally hold this like, I don't want to like judge other people just because that is like the morally correct thing to do. They tend to have better ability to either maybe control some of these more automatic gut level things, or maybe they have just learned to make different associations over time that like, hey, maybe that's not a good thing to do. It's folks that just like are primarily externally driven, like, okay, I'm not going to be prejudiced because other people tell me not to do this, or people that just don't care, right? They're like, ah, eh, I'll just, my opinion is, it is what it is. I really don't care about what other people think about how I feel about being a prejudiced person. Those individuals tend to express, at least in our studies, tend to express implicit bias at higher rates. So I know a number of your papers centered around Goffman's work on stigma. And you mentioned a little bit before about tattooed people being perceived as more deviant and things like that. And well, where's this even come from? And I wondered how you view that in terms of the increase in prevalence of tattooing, 
you mentioned there about hand and face tattoos, neck tattoos, mm-hmm. and how this is, even those things are becoming more common now. And I wondered if you thought that with that being so much more prevalent now, could we still consider tattooing as a stigma? Yeah, no, it's, and it's such an interesting question because anyway, in, in one of our early papers, we kind of used some of Goffman's original yeah. definition of you know, this, this blemish on the skin kind of as like a, Hey, seems like he's talking about tattoos. Right. Um, you know, what, one of the things that I've, at least that I've thought about is how Goffman also talks a lot about like covering as an important part of like coping with stigma. And I think at least in terms of like where perhaps tattoos are becoming very prevalent that people can easily cover them. Like if you're wearing, uh, you know, you have a tattoo maybe on your like upper shoulder and so you can wear a shirt and, and it can be easily covered. Now, with like, like face tattoos or, or, or tattoos on, on hands that are much more perhaps visible for people, in talks that I have with people, typically I, I don't find like robust age effects, but just like anecdotally in a lot of conversations with people that I have is that they'll always compare like how they feel about tattoos, maybe as a younger person compared to what like their grandparents feel about tattoos. So I think there is something to a cohort effect where being able to be in a society where perhaps it's it's much more commonplace, like maybe the way that Goffman talks about it is is slightly different, right? Not all tattoos are created equal, and 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 that I think speaks to what I view as a contextual thing, right? Um, you know, I'm impressed with the list of folks that you have on your pod, but but maybe Andrew Timmings' work, you know, like in thinking about different types of job employment. Um, jobs that are more forward facing versus jobs where it could actually be really beneficial. Like me as, as a professor, like we actually know from work that like, I probably get viewed pretty positively by my students for having tattoos, right? Like I'm viewed as relatable. Uh, okay. Let me say this. I think I'm viewed as relatable and cool, right? <laughs> Maybe, but the data at least suggests that male professors with tattoos actually do kind of get this bump in, in some positive factors. It's true. Yeah, I was going to ask, uh, this is Chris again, I was going to ask about that, like the people that we look to as who says it's okay, or or who's making it okay to do some of these things, right? Like, who's the guy that's got I'm tired under his eye? Who's the it's singer? Post Malone, is it? Is it Post Malone? Post Malone, yeah. Posty, right? So like, uh, <laughs> and uh, Machine Gun Kelly, and my favorite is Ninja from Deontwort, right? So I'm wondering... You know, if we ask people about stigma and, and tell them, you know, oh, well, they're an athlete uh, or they're a pop star yeah. or they work at a bank, do their biases fluctuate? Yeah. One of the things that, that we had thought about just as a like prejudice reduction mechanism, um, empathy can be an important thing. Just like having a better understanding of other people, maybe partaking in some perspective taking. We had a, a fairly simple manipulation where... Uh, we gave people different example articles to read that were fabricated, but they, you know, they looked like a real news article. Um, we we kind of did a, a mock-up of something that looked like it was from like a Washington Post article. And in one, we told people it was a control condition that was just like about tattooing. Like this is like literally what tattooing is. The other article was about that uh, tattooing is really this choice that people make that can have some negative consequences and you should really reconsider uh, which is maybe a popular narrative that people have, right? It might like prevent your job prospects. And, and we created another um, another essay where we wanted to get people to think about tattooing slightly different. And so 
we kind of made a mock-up article that was just about tattooing practices with uh, w- with Maori individuals. So thinking about mm. like like historical indigenous tattooing practices in different parts of the world and how it can be a really important marker of one's culture, and it's actually a really important thing to do. And so we had limited evidence of it changing like attitudes towards tattoos. What we did find is that after people read that article, trying to get people to think about tattooing in a broader way, they were reporting that like they themselves felt more empathy towards other people. They themselves felt like they had better ability to perspective take. So, so maybe that's what's happening. Like at a broader level here is that as you see more individuals that are like doing all of these major things, music, sports, um, and, and even just seeing like other individuals. Like if anyone were to look at this podcast and see great academics like Becky, it's like, yeah, anyone can be doing these things. So perhaps having um, more of the backstory on like the why someone gets a tattoo versus like worried about what it means for their future. Like I always get so fascinated by like if I see an article about a musician or someone where it's like, you know, they're going to explain why they got this tattoo. I, I always think that's kind of cool. And part of that is de-individuating that person and getting to understand who they are individually a little bit more. I was thinking about the other Instagram effects, uh, not just driving young women to body image disorders, but the tattooing on Instagram and the sharing of tattoo stuff. Like the Brazilian butt lift is a thing that came mm. out of Instagram too, right? Like other body modifications, in other words, that are not only being normalized, but they're walking you through every single aspect of it. Like you don't have to go to a tattoo studio now to see what a tattoo process looks like or how painful it is. You can watch every little step of it over and over and over again on Instagram. And think about the accessibility of like, you also don't have to go into a tattoo shop and sit and page through like someone's kind of book of, of either their sketches or tattoo work that they've done to find an artist. You could just follow a bunch of people on social media and identifying artists that you think really does great work. And yeah, so so much of this happens like at a faster rate, right? Like it is incredibly accessible in that way. I took my kids to get their first tattoo and they turned 18. The the artist, I went to like look at his stuff and he didn't have a portfolio. He, he sent me back to his Instagram page. And yeah, was... right. Yeah, he tells you, yeah, like use this QR code and just yeah, just get linked to my page real quick. That's awesome. I, mean, I think Instagram has been really revolutionary for that. You know, we used to be just stuck within our little towns or villages or whatever and only knowing a local artist. And now we can see all of this art worldwide. And I think that's really increased what we see is good tattoo work around the world. And the popularization of tattoo conventions. Yeah, exactly. I almost want to take the research that just some of the base stuff that I've done and just out of curiosity, 10, 15 years from now, some of that, some of the, our, our early work by the time it was actually published was like 2017. Mm-hmm. So as we're into the, the later, you know, 2020s, kind of looking at similar samples that we drew from before, I'd love to just make cross-decade comparisons. Obviously, that would be a difficult thing to do, like in terms of what it actually means, but things will change in terms of some of these more automatic, implicit type associations. Yeah. I know some of the, some of the work you looked at was around, even though people aren't explicitly stigmatized as much anymore, for tattooing we do still see these implicit biases and some of the some of the places where we see that is in healthcare um so where tattooed people are more likely to be sort of implicitly blamed for their illnesses that really aren't their fault so i was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that yeah yeah we have a, a set of studies that we published back in 
2019, 2020. And part of our focus was that um, if people have more information about someone, presumably they would use that information when they're making judgments about that person, especially if it's really important information. And what we did is we gave people either a picture of a tattooed individual or the exact same image, but without a tattoo. And we just gave them a couple sentences about why this individual had an illness. So in one condition, we told people that this person contracted HIV from uh, like risky needle use practices, or they contracted HIV because they were getting a blood transfusion. And, you know, by some medical mistake, uh, they contracted HIV. So in one instance, definitely not their fault. In the other instance, perhaps people would be very likely to view that person as blameworthy. So uh, perhaps to no surprise, doesn't matter if you're tattooed or not tattooed. If you are perceived in kind of a blameworthy, like this is something that you have done to cause this, people are very likely to say you're responsible for this. And uh, maybe this is perhaps a very American thing. You should be paying for more of your healthcare costs. In the other condition, uh, when we think about this instance where someone isn't blameworthy, what we would expect to see is that people are going to take that into account, right? They're going to say, okay, this person, the reason why they contracted HIV isn't their fault, so we shouldn't view them as responsible. We find that for the non-tattooed person. For the tattooed individual, we find that they're assigning just as much blame uh, and responsibility for this illness and saying, yeah, and you still should be paying uh, money for, for whatever healthcare costs you're going to have. So in, in social psychology, one of the phenomenon that we typically talk about is something called the fundamental attribution error. Normally, when something bad happens to people, we are going to rely on like dispositional things. So it's something about you as a person. That's why this bad thing happened to you. And we tend to maybe just push aside more of the contextual environmental factors that could have contributed to this. Now, there's certainly examples where people don't do this. There's some cultural differences. But with this fundamental attribution error, normally if people are just kind of lazy thinking, like they're, like they're not putting much motivation into their thoughts about this, they're just going to rely on whatever the, the gut level association instinct is. And according to kind of our framework, that's what we thought they would do with that tattooed individual, which is you've already made some questionable life decisions like having this tattoo on your neck, according to that individual, right? This is kind of within the realm of possibilities that I'm willing to say you probably also are somewhat responsible for this too then, even though that's completely inaccurate, right? I think we see that with a lot of health things where even just our conversations about obesity oftentimes gets framed in personal choice when there could be genetic factors or, or something else that's at play, right? But we rely on the, it's you that are doing this. Um, you know, individualistic cultures, I think, are, are very prone to that type of thinking. So all U.S. data that we explored in that study. That's a really good point about individualist cultures. I hadn't thought of that. So to kind of connect these uh, dots a little bit to your more recent work, you actually weren't looking at uh, tattooed people, but you were looking at negative implicit attitudes and stereotypes of indigenous Americans in healthcare settings and kind of bringing it back to the tattoo stuff. We see this uh, wave of revitalization of indigenous tattooing practices. So with those implications of the negative stereotypes of indigenous Americans, do you see this being compounded by a return to these traditional practices or how might we, we ameliorate some of these attitudes in healthcare? Yeah. I kind of a, another line that's really been in development with, with my colleagues at the university of Arizona and my doctoral advisor, Jeff Stone, 
much of the focus of, of what we've done with healthcare is really understanding some of the causes and consequences of um, implicit bias in healthcare settings with medical residents and, and physicians, how that might actually leak into some decision-making with their patients. Now, whether it would be this compounding thing of I view tattooed individuals as maybe like non-compliant with medical advice, or even at the same time, you know, like stereotypes I have about different racial or ethnic groups, if, if those kind of compound together and make this additive effect, I'm not sure. But what we do know is that, you know, biases towards different patient groups is, is quite robust. What it predicts can be a little varied. I think we're still kind of at the tip of the iceberg in terms of understanding that side of it in, in healthcare settings. But no one's actually, you know, at least on this uh, implicit side, no one's actually looked at how like practicing physicians are implicitly stereotyping or the implicit attitudes that they hold towards tattooed individuals. We're starting to do that work, right? But, but, but no one's actually like published it and talked about it. Chris, this kind of reminds me of some of your work, like for a medical professional, if I see someone with like really nice tattoos that are clearly well taken care of, that's actually good evidence that they're going to be very compliant with like health procedures, right? So mm -hmm. um, like, like ironically, we might be able, we might be actually able to use tattoos as a, as a signal of like, hey, they actually do take care of their body and, and they've put an immense amount of time into showing signs of like physical fitness and in, in, in kind of this broad way. So whether that's what people would do automatically and some of the judgments they make about that patient, I'm not sure. I think some of the cultural, you know, stereotypes and cultural artifacts of perpetuating ideas about tattooed individuals might be in conflict with that. But if we could give people bits of information about like what a tattoo might actually signal in terms of fitness and health, maybe that's something that kind of tips the scale in terms of you know, I don't need to rely on this stereotype I have about this group. I'm individuating this person as, as, you know, what are your needs right now versus thinking old school ways of biker gang member, circus performer, insert, you know, maybe like culturally, historically deviant group. And I've seen so many studies about tattooing and health come out of nursing and dermatology, mm. right? I'm less thinking that they're stigmatizing people for having tattoos in general and more irritated by them assuming that tattoos have medical complications and warning mm. you about pigments and cancers and granulomas and things like this when other things have far higher rates of, of risk other things that yeah. we do go to the yeah. gym you know you're gonna <laughs> you're gonna hurt yourself right. uh, if you push too much weight be careful don't mm -hmm. don't exercise right mm -hmm. there's this binary like do it don't do it crap that i i see loaded in so and that's why i think it's interesting to think about the ways in which you know like like when you view someone that yeah that works out the automatic thing that comes to mind for any sort of person in the healthcare industry is, is probably like that's a good thing right um, yeah, maybe maybe there's some stupid things that you're doing that we can fix and correct if if you have bad form, but that's probably not our conversation in the clinic, right? That's for when you need to get PT down the line because you've, <laughs> you've ruined your back or something. Yeah, but the reality is I hurt myself at the gym regularly. Right, and that's the heuristics that people use, right? Like, oh, I think tattooing is associated with this and it's that small nugget and that's what I'm now going to use. And it's that easy thinking, right? That's the thing that just doesn't take much effort and time for me to do. I don't have to correct any sort of first blush judgmenty type things that I have. Maybe default thinking. Yeah, default. Yeah, I think that's, a, that's an appropriate way to put it, right? And so where does that default come from? 
How did you grow up? You know, culturally, what are things? My, my assumption is that my kids, when they grow up, they're going to view tattoos as a fairly normal thing because like yeah. Papa was covered in tattoos. So yeah. yeah, I think that there's there's something to be said about, about that too, right? The environment in which is a part of interacting with the ideas that you have as a person. I like that. And I'm, I suggest the word default because it makes me think of the default brain network and the idea that our brain is always on at low ebb and most everything we do is automated. It's an effort to actually have critical thinking. That's why we have to teach it, right? Well, and I think one of the issues that we talk about kind of in psychology, like it comes down to like a basic measurement issue. You know, like, like when you're actually measuring implicit attitudes uh, and stereotypes, like how are you doing it? The implicit association test, the IAT, is is usually the one that gets most of the focus and attention. And um, and, and that's where much of our work is, but we've used other different priming paradigms and measurement procedures. So I think a lot of pushback that folks usually give is on kind of the measurement side, which is 100% valid, right? And so we should always be continuing to question the measures that we use and better understand the measures that we're using. One of the things, at least that we kind of study more broadly with implicit bias and its implications in healthcare is like, how do we reduce this? And that's where I think there's a lot of issue because it's very in vogue to talk about like implicit bias training. And I'm like, what the hell are you, what does that even mean, right? Like if you just tell people like you have implicit biases, now that you know about them, you can fix them. It's like, I actually don't think any research would support that, right? Yet there Mm. are companies that make a ton of money kind of selling people on this dream or presenting things and saying, this will reduce your implicit bias. And it's like, but are you actually testing it? Like, are you actually testing this paradigm or, you know, it's, it's really just a really good lecture on something, right? I would never be presenting something on implicit bias and then walk away and tell students or staff or faculty or anyone that I'm talking with that like, and what I just gave you is something that I have tested in a bunch of different ways and, and, it, and it's surefire. Um, I don't think that that's accurate. So, you know, we've done some work trying to validate specific trainings that we've used. Uh, There's other great work out there in the healthcare world that's done this. Taking elements that we know are things that that can be important at reducing implicit bias. But the, the key thing to consider is that many of these trainings and workshops are things that we're doing over multiple hours, over multiple days. Do we know how long the effects last for? Not as well as we should. Mm. Versus like, here's this one shot thing that, you know, takes 10 minutes to do. You know, there is evidence of success for that, but then there's robust papers that have come out saying, but 24 hours later, you're right back to whatever your baseline was. So it's one of those things where I get excited about it just in the sense of that it's like, oh, so you're telling me there's work to do. Cool. Awesome. Let's do it. Right. Let's, yeah. let's get, let's get more data. Let's get more labs doing this work so we can better understand this. So I think any criticisms of this work are an important part of the conversation. And yeah, I want to see the work done like really well and really thoughtfully versus just in vogue flashy terms that, that people use, which also at the same time, if you ask people what implicit bias means, they're, can be variations. Different disciplines talk about it differently. So uh, that's my that's my rambling way of saying like, yep, I completely agree with any con- criticism <laughs> <laughs> and argue that we just need to know more. Colin, don't take my annual training modules away. I only have <laughs> 17 overdue modules to complete and I want to do them all. See, but, but, but that's like the exact thing, right? Like when you think about who's actually going to be like partaking in these 
people that are like, you're just kind of preaching to the choir, they're probably already on board. They probably already like show lower implicit bias than, than your group who's like, okay, I'll do this mandatory thing because I have to, but I'm doing this against my will or, or I'm not going to engage. And guess what? If you're not going to engage with the material, like, like students that don't want to be in a classroom to learn something, guess what they're probably not going to do? learn the material so i like to follow them home and continue teaching them that's you know just like every second i can talk at them i take zero work-life balance is the key is what saying, yeah. i don't i just let them go i'm like it's up to you do what you want it's your life yeah. it's your degree i've got mine we've uh we've we've talked kind of around the this increase in social media and the competition in the market to produce better art better tattoos i know you did a condition in one of your earlier studies where you looked at symmetry of the tattoo so body placement and and just wondering how that affected your results and whether or not you looked at other other maybe blemishes of the skin like scars or or yeah. birthmarks or things like that yeah, great question. In our work, we've kind of placed different types of tattoos in different locations um, and, and find pretty consistent results. At this you know, implicit level, people just view that person more negatively than, say, if the person didn't have any tattoos. The, the reason in, in one of our early studies, the reason why we kind of had this symmetry version of our study is that when we had people looking at images of, a, of, of tattooed and non-tattooed indiv individuals, the tattoo is on one side of the neck. And I was in, in conversation, I think I was presenting at a small conference, like just some preliminary stuff. And someone was like, well, we know that people like symmetrical things. So hmm. you can't say that it's the tattoo. It's actually that like, this is just an asymmetrical face and we don't like asymmetrical faces. And I was like, hmm. okay, interesting. So what if we just put the tattoo on both sides of the neck? So nice. like, are, are we like doubling the amount of tattoos? Like, yeah, technically right that's a criticism but are we also making it now a symmetrical image for you to view yeah we are so for that criticism that was one of the ways that we handled the criticism was to yeah have same tattoo just on both sides of the neck and nothing changed so we were like okay just kind of our way of like slowly kind of ruling out alternate explanations right because then we always get the question of well what about location and what about type of tattoo a 2019 paper rules out things like that. And our 2017 paper also rules out different types of tattoos. So, so that makes me think of the Cozeal paper from 2009. And it's one of the ones that got me started. I don't know if you're familiar, but they found that a signaling function for tattooing, but not piercing, and that people who were tattooed were more likely to be more symmetrical themselves. I mm. wonder if you took that into account at all. Oh, you know, no, we didn't. Um, so we've done, we've kind of done work in two different ways where we've taken images of tattooed people and then had the tattoos professionally photoshopped away. Mm -hmm. And we've also just taken images from like face databases where it's like average attractiveness, a neutral expression. Like we try and control for as much as, as possible. And then we just Photoshop a tattoo on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so actually speaking of that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to, to know like exactly, but that'd actually be an interesting thing to do. Take the tattooed pictures, Photoshop it out, ask people who do they think more is symmetrical, just you know, one group with the tattooed, one group without the tattooed. And then we can actually see in our data set if they're equally symmetrical. Okay, cool. Um, or if it's when that individual has the tattoo that's somehow signaling something. Yeah, that's an interesting thought. And Mike, you said something about scars or birthmarks? Oh, yeah. You know, we actually haven't dove too deep into that, which, which I think is kind of a practical next step. And to be honest, it's something that I think I've talked about 
as a future direction for the past like eight years <laughs> and, just haven't, and just haven't done it. But um, yeah, but if, but if kind of our, you know, model that, that we're thinking about with something about responsibility and blameworthiness for whatever it is that you've chosen to do your, to yourself at some level, I would argue that that person would be viewed differently than say someone who's born with a, a, a port wine stain birthmark or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Well, Becky, Mike, we should let Colin go, but you know, I don't want to cut you off if you have a burning desire to ask him one more question. No, well, I guess uh, first of all, thanks for addressing all those critiques and, and criticisms. I think it's important for people to understand how this research is done and progresses. So we appreciate that. Before we let you go, I was wondering if you could give us your take-home message regarding tattoos, bias, and health. Yeah, my, my take-home message would be, I think, something I've kind of harped on a couple of times, which is let's continue to do the work, right? Let's continue to ask the questions. And I think, um, you know, this is something that Andrew Timmy mentioned on one of your recent episodes where I think so many people get fascinated about this in the broader society, yet in academia, there just like isn't a lot of focus on, on tattooing specifically. And that's always boggled my mind. Like everyone else seems really interested in this. And my students are always really interested in this. Yet when we take it into, you know, an academic context, it seems to be devoid of that. So I, don't know, I, I, I encourage other, you know, students and scholars and people that think and talk about this to, to continue the conversation. And, and I think podcasts like this are, are a really important direction for that. So thank you for having me on because you all have had some really like amazing scholars. And I'm, uh, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm honored to be kind of uh, in, the, in season two here with, with those same people. It's our pleasure. And, and we're picking your brain for our research. We're all in this together and moving it forward. So you talking to us helps us do better work. I always love to chat and collaborate. So I look forward to, to reading all of your work in the near future too. Wonderful. Let's make it happen. All right, look, Becky, uh, thanks for staying up late and suffering through your cold. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, I think she had a hot toddy to keep her going. I did. There, so Good. I ready to fall <laughs> and um, yeah. Perfect. Thanks for listening. We're on Twitter at inking underscore immunity and on Instagram and Facebook at inking dot of dot immunity. The hosts of the show are Dr. Chris Lynn and Mike Smetana at the University of Alabama and Dr. Becky Owens at UK Sunderland. Kira Yancey is the production manager. Thanks to the University of Alabama Anthropology Department for helping make this show possible. You can find our full unedited season two interviews on our Facebook page, or watch them happening live on Facebook most Wednesday mornings. See you next time.